0: You're going
1: inside the truck. Sports television production revealed. How it goes from the TV mobile to your screen. The personalities, the stories, the raw excitement. Here is Paul Hemming and Steve Lansky. I'm Steve Lansky. I've produced Hockey Night in Canada, the CFL on CBC, golf, baseball, the U of A Golden Bear basketball tournament, i worked at the Olympic Winter Games in Norway. I am the luckiest guy on the face of the planet. And I'm Paul Hammond. I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years.
0: I've directed the NHL, CFL, and World Juniors for TSN, the NHL and Hockey Night in Canada for Sportsnet, the San Jose Sharks for NBC Sports California,
1: and currently, I'm the broadcast director for the Carolina Hurricanes on Fox Sports Carolinas. So we're gonna get right into it today. Every time I'm at a function, party, just sitting around with a bunch of friends, barbecue, whatever, and somebody who doesn't know finds out that I'm in live sports television, honest to God, the first or second thing somebody asks is, what do you do when something traumatic happens on your air? Something Mm -hmm. that wasn't expected, something that might be very, very serious physically to a player or a participant, an official, even a fan. How Mm -hmm. do you... How do you react to that? And and con- conversely, how do you react to something that you know is going to come? How do you plan for that, like a milestone point or something like that? And that question always, always, always gets asked. And so we're going to kick that idea around today.
0: And, it, and it's such a great topic because sports television is really the last frontier of live TV. I mean, everything is recorded these days, even the six o'clock news, 80 to 90% of it comes back from tape. Live sports broadcasts is the only thing left where, where you have to re- react in a millisecond to something that happens in front of you. Um, and then that is the greatest challenge of what we do.
1: So it's a bit of a heavy topic, parts of it will be, uh, but before we get into it, you, my friend, have a shout out. We do, uh, we, we, we both have to say a huge thanks to David
0: at Pro Helmet Deckles down in Ocala, Florida. Thank uh, you, we, got our, yes, we got our first Inside the Truck swag slash merch this week, Steve, when a package of Inside the Truck Pro Helmet Deckles uh, showed up on my doorstep. Uh, if you geek out on stuff like uh, Helmet Deckles, uh, you've got to check out uh, David's Twitter account, Pro Helmet Deckles. His list of clients is very impressive. Um, his uh, portfolio of work Is even more so. Um, My favorite is uh, he did the 3D, so it's a raised logo that the Carolina Hurricanes wear on their visiting helmets, and it's phenomenal. Um, And Steve, he's even done work for your beloved Oilers uh, and your favorite player, number 99. So I would suggest that um, you check out his Twitter
1: account ASAP. So for longtime hockey fans, there's really only one point of reference for today's topic, and it was 1989. Clint Malarchuk is in goal for the Buffalo Sabres at the odd in Buffalo. And they're playing the St. Louis Blues. And the Blues move the puck into the Sabres zone. The puck goes into the right corner to Malarchuk's right. And then it gets fired into the slot. And just as the puck gets to the slot, Steve Tuttle, the Blues forward, and a Sabres defenseman come together. Tuttle gets pitched feet first right into the air. And his skate cuts... Malarchuk's carotid artery and Nick's his jugular vein. And if you need more than that, here's how the Buffalo announcers, television wise, called that play.
0: Here's the pass. Oh. On into the Buffalo zone. Mahar goes to the corner of the pass. Oh,
1: wow. Uh, watch Malarchuk. That's the story right oh now with. Oh, rip. Oh, look at oh, that. Oh, Take the off. Oh, oh. Man. That is the. Oh. Please take the camera oh, off it. Don't please. even bring it over there, please. Oh, my God. Just keep it away. Oh, oh terrible. terrible. Oh, my, oh my God. God, what happened? You're watching Sabres Hockey and the
0: Niagara Volunteers oh, oh Sports God. Network. Oh.
1: So as you can hear, Ted Darling threw to commercial there because mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was so graphic, there was really nothing they could do. No, exactly. I, and Steve,
0: that night... I was working uh, at TSN in the newsroom on the show TSN Sports Desk, as it was known back then. And uh, we had you know a feed of all the different sporting events up in, in a massive monitor wall there. And of course, everybody came towards the Sabres broadcast that night. And so we watched, we watched the whole thing unfold from from the broadcast perspective. And the one thing that really resonated with me was the video that you'll see on YouTube, you do see a camera kind of snap in tight. To get the shot, which is a normal reaction for all cameramen to do that, get the shot, get the shot. But uh, immediately he was told by the you know the director, obviously of the Sabres broadcast, to get wide. Everybody, get wide, get wide. Me, so meaning pull back. We, I don't want to see any tight shots of anything. And I just remember that they attended to Malarchuk on the ice. Everything was from you know a, a, an angle that was as wide as the play-by-play angle that you're used to seeing on the camera and you know end zone cameras and you know. And I just thought that they treated treated it with respect, you know, because in a situation like that, Clint Millarchuk's wife could have been watching. His kids could have been watching. You have to be family, you know, back in Edmonton. Uh, you have to be respectful of that. And and, and and that goes against every fiber of your reaction to, to, to do the
1: opposite. That brings up a great question for me. So you don't ever go into a game thinking that's going to happen. And I'm not sure as a producer, you pre-discuss it with the director. I mean, you may touch on, I mean, if you're doing IndyCar, I'm sure you do. But if you're doing something else, I, I don't remember ever discussing that in advance with a director. And then all of a sudden, you have, how do I say this, moral and ethical issues that you're thrust into immediately. I mean, mm-hmm. immediately. How, mm-hmm. do you, how do you work that together as a team? Because I've, I've been in that situation. And let me tell you, it turned into a quick argument really fast. That's a tough thing to figure out while you're trying to broadcast.
0: And the key word that you just said there is team. And that's where a producer and a director need to lean on each other and, and help each other make the right decision. You know, in a situation from my, the chair I'm sitting in, I'm the director, I want to get every camera in to get the best angle of that injury, you know, and 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 that's up you know a producer a good producer who's got more of a 10,000 foot perspective will say no 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 back off we need to back off you know what i mean like this is not something we want to see on the live broadcast and and this will never get re, you know they would never replay a tight shot of blood spewing out of Clint Millarchuk's neck in anything in a feature in a news report nothing so i mean there no good can come from from being you know from invading invading that space with the camera so but that's where a good team you know, it's just, you know, uh, you know, just, just need like more of a, you know, a 10,000 pr- foot perspective.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I've had a couple of situations similar to that and one wasn't on the air. It was two fans fighting in the stands. But as a producer, I would understand the value of wide, but I would also scream into the tape machines, everybody keep recording because you never mm-hmm. know what the implications of something like that are going to be down the road they may need that footage for something, maybe a lawsuit. right? Maybe right. something, right? So yep. we would never air it again, but you wouldn't burn it either. You, you yeah. would save it because I've been in that situation where the league and I've had the police come into a truck that I was in. Mm-hmm. We were in Edmonton and two fans fought and we happened to be showing it and we mm-hmm. happened to record it and one guy turned and absolutely plowed another guy in the face and the next thing you know, the cops are in the back asking for footage of that because they somehow knew we had it. And we did, and we gave it to them. So you can't show it, but you got to save it.
0: You have to be very careful with that though, Steve, because especially in today's electronic world of videotape, we don't actually use videotape anymore. It's now, it's, it's computer files. Those things can accidentally pop up on the air at any point. So you do have to be really careful with that stuff. And you can save yourself a lot of grief by, you know, if, if it's not being, it's not being shot by the cameras the wrong way, it won't go into the videotape department the wrong way. And it won't accidentally come out on your air the wrong way. So you just, there's a, you know, it's, it's amazing
1: the cycle of thoughts that you have to go through really quick when something like that happens. And we've already spent uh, five minutes discussing that we something we would have to decide in 10 seconds. It took the trainer 10 uh, seconds to get to Malarchuk on the ice. I counted it. We've already discussed it for five. you, You literally have 10 seconds to make all these decisions when you're in the mobile.
0: Yeah, or, or if you're from a director standpoint, you've got like a second or a second and a half to make that because on the stoppage, when you hear the whistle go, your natural reaction is to cut tight and to cut tight to where, the, you know, to where the action is. You've got to know in a second and a half, okay, where am I going? Where am I going? That's the right
1: call. So the Malarchuk story has not a tragic ending. He played again in the National League. He actually wrote an autobiography called The Crazy Game, if you haven't read it. Read it immediately. He just lays himself bare. He hasn't had a smooth road since that happened, but he survived. Um, Paul, you were involved in a situation where the gentleman at the center of it was not so lucky, correct? Yes. So it was uh, April 1st,
0: 1996. Uh, That day, my shift at TSN was to direct the Montreal Expos baseball control show. So we had a truck in Cincinnati at Riverfront Stadium doing the Expos and the Reds that day. So my my job was to direct the the the, the studio portion so we would bring the show on the air. We you know we take breaks at the bottom of the 3rd, 5th and 8th inning and then we do a post game show.
1: Opening day, yep. right? Reds always open the season. It, yes.
0: Yeah. It was opening day. And so, you know, driving into work that day, you know, swing by, grab a coffee, get into control room, you know, kind of go through graphics and stuff. have a little bit of a camera meeting, talk to the commentators. And then we sit down for the afternoon start. Well, what unfolded in the next couple hours was something I was not prepared for. John McSherry was the home plate umpire that day. And, uh,
1: Veteran, you know, veteran yeah, but, yep, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, a big dude, like 6'2, over 300 pounds. And uh, it was early in the game, he just called, he called time, you know, what you see umpires do all the time. He turned around and kind of walked back towards the backstop, and it was almost just like he just, you know, you know, just needed to take a break for a second, but he only got about three or four steps, and he didn't even make it to the backstop, he collapsed face first into the dirt at Riverfront Stadium. And this is the way that it sounded on the Cincinnati Reds television broadcast. He was unable to get those three hits. John McSherry has walked back towards the
1: home plate door and he has just collapsed behind home plate. That's the crew chief of this crew, National League veteran umpire John McSherry.
0: And over the course of the last couple of years, he has had a couple of incidents where he has felt faint. It took like a millisecond for the trainers to get out there. They called for medics right away. It was You knew that something terrible had
1: happened right away. So the issue, though, is when he calls time and turns around, you don't know what's coming, right? No. You don't no, know I mean, whether he's got something caught in his throat, whether he's just hot from the day, what yeah. the issue is. So with Chuck, it was instant knowledge. So you, but you yeah. stay on McSherry because you don't know, right? Right.
0: I mean, he could have gone down. It could have been a cramp or something like who knows. Right. Right. But, but we, but as it played out, as the pictures played out from riverfront, you know, immediately it was bad news. I mean, there was, there was probably 20 to 30 people around him, trainers, medics, police, firefighters, anybody they could rally from, from field level at riverfront stadium. And so, you know, at that point, you know, uh, Ken's uh, Dave Van Horn and Ken Singleton were, the broadcast team for TSN in the booth that day in Cincinnati. And we had our studio show back in, in Toronto. And basically um, now at this point, you're, 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 you know, what we say in the business, you're tap dancing, you're tap dancing. You have no information, you know, it's not good. You certainly can't speculate on what happened. You know, the shots of the fans, you know, just in like utter disbelief and, you know, and crying and they, you know, it was, it was very emotional, from Riverfront. So basically uh, the truck ended up, we providing us with live pictures. We took it over at the studio end, but that was one of those days where coming into work that day and you are not remotely prepared for the fact that somebody is going to die on your air. Bruce Perrin was the, the producer that day in the truck for TSN and, in Cincinnati? and he, in in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yeah. And he handled it remarkably. I mean, there was a low home camera, which basically sh- showed John McSherry's last moment of life. Uh, you know, it was never shown mercifully. Um, but I just thought that the the way that uh Dave Van Horn, Ken Singleton and the production team in Cincinnati, the way they handled it was uh was about as well as it could have been done.
1: And when you started in this business, did you ever get any training in that or did you ever discuss that with anybody about a moment like that? Because I don't remember ever having that discussion with anybody.
0: No, you never you never do. You're like that never comes up. You know, it's just you know, it, it's cover the game. What, what are the storylines? What are the, you know, what are the themes? What are the graphics we're getting in? What are the video packages we're getting in? But never in production meetings do we talk about, okay, well, the home plate umpire today is going to die of a massive heart attack on the spot. How are we going to handle that? It just never, never comes up.
1: So the worst moment I've ever had in a truck and we weren't live, we were live to tape, which means We're recording everything, we're cutting everything, just like we're live, but there are no announcers. We're gonna take it back and put the announcers on in post, and it's gonna look like they were there and we cut it live. Post, short for post-production. Finalization of a broadcast in an edit suite before it goes to air. So we're at the Keystone Center in Brandon, Manitoba. And we're doing the Budweiser Pro Rodeo there. And the Mm -hmm. bull riding, as you know, is the most dangerous event by a mile Mm -hmm. in rodeo. Yeah. And this was the days before, I think it was 1989. This was the days before bull riders wore helmets and flak jackets. Insane. Yes. So there's a bull rider named Charles Sampson. I think he's from California. And he comes out of the chute and he doesn't make it the eight seconds. And he goes down on the ground and the bull steps I mm-hmm. cannot say this any other way, squarely on his head. Oh, boy. And he stops moving immediately. Now, there's no announcers, so we're watching. hmm And our director is Brandt Haywood. hmm And we talked about him in the last show with his nickname, Beaner. Beaner, yeah. Right. So we're putting in replays as we do this live to tape. hmm And Samson's lying there, and Beaner says, we got a great replay on Blue. I said, we're not showing it. Mm-hmm. Stevie, mm-hmm. we got to show this replay. I said mm-hmm. Beaner, we're not word that yeah. starts with F showing right. it. And I can feel I can feel the emotions coursing through me at this instant that I felt back in 1989. I said we're not F and showing it. Right. We got to show it. We got to show it. I said Beaner, the man could be dead. Mm-hmm. We're not showing it. If he ends up, you know, surviving, we'll save what's on blue. I'll put it in and post back in Toronto. We'll have that replay, but we're not effing showing it. right? And now he's really pissed off. (laughs) He gives it the old, yeah, the old arm cross and the lean back in the chair. And I can't direct, so I'm not going to cut it. And I think Mm -hmm. at one point I said, you're going to cut a camera or are you just going to sit there? Right, right.
0: And like, yeah,
1: it was a very, very tense moment. And I Mm -hmm. absolutely stand by that decision because I don't know what's going to happen to Charles Sampson. And. The beauty of this story is not only did he survive, wait for it, he rode the next day.
0: Perfect.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good ending. That's the best ending of this story ever. But I will never forget that moment. And it was all based on ethics and morality and how I felt at that moment. And it's like you said earlier, what if his wife ends up seeing it? What if his kids are there? What if we're not showing that? There's no need to show that. Mm -hmm. We get it. We get it. He's lying there, not moving. The bull stepped on him. We're not showing it. That's it. Period.
0: In that millisecond that you had to make that decision, you know, you made the right decision, and um, I'm sure, I'm sure he and his family uh, were both, you know, um, glad for that.
1: I hope so. I thought about it at the time, and I always just try to think: Would somebody need to see this? Would somebody in a family need to see this? No, they Mm -hmm. wouldn't. So we're not showing it. It did not go over well with the gentleman sitting beside me. So that uh, that's pretty
0: heavy portion of the show that we've just gone through here. So I'm going to lighten things up a little bit, Stevo. Um, just back uh, in last February, um, I, I was uh, Canes were playing in Toronto, and uh, you know that Toronto on a Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, always is that a, a big deal. Night. Is Toronto it's on Saturday? A, is it? It's yeah? kind of a big deal. <laughs> it might not have been to, for Kaniacs down here in in Raleigh in North Carolina, but. It, as a Canadian kid doing a game on Saturday night at Maple Leaf Gardens, um, you know, is, is extra special. And uh, so that day, you know, I grab my Starbucks, I'm walking to the rink, and I'm like, "Love life, this is going to be the best." You know, everybody I know is watching the show because all the kids I, you know, grew up with are all Leaf fans. And uh, you know, and we're you know, we're the primetime game on Hockey Night in Canada. It's awesome. So, Canes get out to a great a great start. We get out to like a one nothing, two nothing lead, and then things get interesting. Um, And this is where, uh, you know, as the theme of the show, uh, you had to put a different hat on immediately. James Reimer uh, got into a crease collision um, around the six minute mark and uh, goaltender. Yeah. And so he skated over to the Canes bench and let the staff know that he couldn't go anymore. So he takes himself out of the game. And so that's no problem. Peter Morazic, our, our other goalie, is is exceptional. So, you know, and the Canes are in a, in a hunt for a playoff spot at this position. So every point, you know, is is crucial, is critical. So Peter comes in. Um, so we're like halfway through the second period. It's 3-1 Canes. And Morazic there's a puck dumped into the Carolina zone. And Morazic aggressively races out to play it out by the blue line. And Toronto's Kyle Clifford came in. And uh, it was a, an unbelievably... Massive collision that they had. It was not a dirty hit, um, but Clifford hit him pretty good with his shoulder and Mrazic went down like a sack of potatoes. And he was down for a few minutes and was escorted off. So now, doing the math, that's both our goalies gone. So uh, now what happens? And now the game has stopped. You know, I'm taking shots at the Carolina bench, the training staff, the trainer talking to head coach Rod Brendam Moore. And what is, what is going to happen next? Well, we understand that there's, uh, there's, you know, there's an emergency backup goalie or e-bug, as they're called, at every NHL game for this precise reason. But we have no idea who the e-bug is um, or, <laughs> or you know, is this guy any good? What level of hockey do you play at? It was just basically a huge mystery. Anyway, we got tipped off early because I had released our, one of our cameras to go to the Carolina Hallway. To shoot our our obligatory player interview in the second intermission, and as the camera was standing, you know behind the scenes, having no idea what's going on out on the ice at Scotiabank Arena, this the training staff kicks into high gear and they pull an extra jersey, it's number ninety, and they start laying out letters for a nameplate. And they do you have spelling. all
1: this on camera? Do you have well, all this I'm, on I'm,
0: camera. I'm watching it. I'm watching it play out in real time. I'm like right. to my producer Jim Malley. I'm like, hey Jimmy, what's going on here? And, uh, it was, yeah, so they, they, they took out, they opened up, you know, their travel containers, their road kits, and they pulled out an A and a Y and an R and an E and an S and they spelled out his nameplate. and there they are stitching it. They're, they're making his Jersey on the fly. And I'm like, okay, it's Ayers. And so we get the name David Ayers and we're like, okay, so now everybody's on like Yahoo, you know, Google, whatever on their phones, Googling, like who's David Ayers. Turns out this guy's a 42 year old Zamboni driver um and he's a, a recent you know he, he's a kidney transplant survivor um and he's just sort of like a you know a goalie that steps in and he'll, he'll work with the AHL Toronto Marlies sometimes he's up with the Leafs he's just basically the goalie when there's no more goalies left so we're like okay so we're scrambling for all this information and now everything is on the fly okay whatever we prepared for for that game has now been ripped up and it's in the garbage because now we are the, the, the new, the biggest story in hockey is now unfolding for us second by second in front of us. You know, it's
1: the only story, right? It's the only story the of the game. It's the only story. Now, now, yeah.
0: now nothing matters. It's right. the, the playoff push doesn't matter. The points right. don't matter. The Leafs, if they win, it doesn't matter. Nothing right. matters now. Right? right. So there's a hallway camera in front of the Carolina hurricanes. And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm just staring at that camera. I'm staring at that camera and all of a sudden out comes this guy. It looks like Tim Thomas, uh, you know, it just looks like a, a beer league goalie. He's all puffed out in extra large equipment. And all, he this, like, all that. Did you just call the, Tim
1: Thomas a beer league goalie? Is that you what you know, did? No, I didn't. But he looked like Tim <laughs>
0: Thomas. And he, was a, he looked like he weighed about 300 pounds. And he kind of waddles out down the hallway. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's our goalie. And so I, I'll never forget. He comes out, takes his first step out of the ice in Toronto. And the crowd goes wild. There, he gets a standing ovation. And, and, and I wasn't sure at that point, like, so now I've got to cover that, right? It's like Dave Ayer's crowd, Dave Ayer's crowd, Dave Ayer's crowd, Carolina players laughing, like, what is going on here? And I wasn't sure if they were giving a standing ovation because they knew that the Leafs were going to, you know, their beloved Leafs were going to put nine past him and win the game, or if they were actually genuinely happy, right, that this guy was now in the game for them. Anyway, so every second of that broadcast, that was, it was all about this story. On a whistle, I would cut Dave Ayers. On the, I would cut Rod laughing. I would cut other players come over and tapping him. There was nothing else that mattered. John Forslund and Trip Tracy were outstanding upstairs in the booth. Mike Maniscalco, our ice-level reporter, was great. Jim Malia, our producer... Uh, Adam Holdsman, our, our AD, Dean Meglio, our graphics guy. We spent every second of that night coming up with details. When What level did this guy play at? You know, When was his last competitive game? What, you know, When was the last time he took shots? When was the last time he took shots against the Leafs when the Leafs regular goalies were off the ice? We needed to come up with everything because this guy was the show. And if you're not familiar with the story, it was, it was, the le- it was one of the guttiest performances I've ever seen by a team on defense because Carolina – they buttoned it down so tight defensively, it felt like it was Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final in overtime. Isn't that what you'd do? Right? We yeah. don't want him to oh, see any pucks. Yeah. Oh no, he, the guys were diving at pucks. They were diving to make stick checks. They were basically jump. They put they put their face in front of the puck to stop it. As long as it didn't have to get to David Ayers, right? Anyway, Kane's going to win six three, but that was one of those days when again, where you're walking, you know, you get you're ready for you know seven oh eight. Drop the puck, and you just think you're doing a regular game. And then, and then that break that, that happens, you know, but the thing I was truly most proudest about was it was, you know, a team effort on the ice for the Canes. They got the win, but it was even a bigger W for the TV truck too, because, uh, you know, that was one of those nights where you were given nothing. You had to earn every second of that broadcast. That is the most remarkable
1: one I've had happen to me recently. John Forsland and Trip Tracy in the booth must have fallen in love with you that night because everything you gave them would be gold because going in, they'd have had nothing, right? They had had nothing, yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, the stage manager up in the booth had, had her computer
0: out and was trying to feed John and Trip as much stuff as they could on the game. We were feeding John and Trip from downstairs in the truck. But really, from a, you know, from a director's standpoint, the Picasso that needed to be painted was really David Ayers. That was it. I mean this guy was hilarious he he only made eight saves and after each save I cut to him and he'd just be standing there with the biggest grin smile on his face like you know smiling like a butcher's dog and I'm like what is this guy doing like, like <laughs> I've never seen this before but that was the whole story and the and the, the, the reaction of the canes at the bench Rod Brindamore players stuff that was it was priceless it was just priceless.
1: That's such a great story. And to watch you tell it, I realize this is just audio, but your hands are going, your fingers are snapping. Mm -hmm. You're like reliving every moment. I absolutely love it. So that's the height of unpredictability. The height of predictability, for me, uh, December 19th, 1984, Wayne Gretzky has 999 points. And the LA Mm -hmm. Kings are in Edmonton. Team colors, purple, gold, and stink. They were really, <laughs> really bad. So, for me, who loves the Oilers, I don't think we're telling any stories out of school here. Nope. Wayne Gretzky is going to get his thousandth point. There's no 100%. chance. Right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Put it put it in the bank. Mm-hmm. Cash, Cash that check, Steve. Correct. So, we're at the production meeting in the morning, and our host is Tim Spellacy. And I love Speller. Mm-hmm. And I say, we're going to do a tease that says... Gretzky's going to get his thousandth point and you're going to see it tonight live on ITV. That's perfect. Yeah. Except Tim says, but what if he doesn't? I said, Tim, there is zero chance. He does not get this point tonight. Zero (laughs) chance. (laughs) Right. Tim, I don't like it. I don't like it. I said, well, I I understand that you don't like it, but we're doing it. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. He gets it. We've set the whole thing up perfectly, and it's gold. He doesn't get it. We can just express shock and whatever you want to call it at the end of the game that this guy in 60 minutes could not have one bounce off his ass and go to a teammate that scores. Like, right, there's you can't no, lose.
0: It's a no-lose.
1: It's a no-lose. However, we, Tim and I just can't see eye to eye on this. And I love Tim. He didn't put up a lot of resistance on a lot of different things, but he was resisting here. And finally, I said, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to write the tease and it's going to end with tonight. Wayne Gretzky will get his thousandth point and you will see it live on ITV. And all you got to do, partner, is read it. Right. He was not a happy camper. <laughs> he read it. Yeah. And then, of course, minute 41 into the damn game. It took that long? Yeah. Yeah. A whole minute. What's that? Uh, 101 yeah. seconds? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gretzky goes in in a breakaway. We're ISOing him beautifully. I wish he'd scored, but he didn't. And the mm-hmm. puck goes off the post and Mike Khrushchenski comes in and taps it in the net. There's a thousand. We've got the ISO as he swings into the corner. It's pure gold.
0: That's right. I, just clean off your crystal ball
1: and put it back in your bag. Exactly. And so, of course, being the jackass that I am, I yeah. just hit my key to Tim in the studio and said, So there you <laughs> go, buddy. <laughs> And I, it, Tim was in the dark because you turn off the studio lights yeah, when the stu- yeah, yeah. but there, there may have been a gesture. I can't yeah. remember. There probably yeah. was. And then of course Wayne goes on to, I think got five points that night. So I, I didn't, re- it wasn't a huge crystal ball. It was just yeah. like a, a marble. I had a crystal marble <laughs> right. that night. Yeah. So that one for me anyway was completely predictable. Maybe not for Tim, but for me. And you're in the truck at maybe one of the most unpredictable moments in Grey Cup history.
0: And it happens to only be my second Grey Cup. My first one was in 2008 in Montreal. This one was November 29, 2009 at McMahon Stadium in Calgary, Alberta. It was the 97th Grey Cup, the Montreal Alouettes, and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, For those of you uh, that may have heard this, it's commonly referred to now as the 13th man game. Uh, So it's it's an awesome game between uh, two powerhouses that season. And basically it's a, it's a two point game with a minute 45 left on the clock. You know, Montreal's got the ball. They, they get into field goal position, but they've run the clock down to zeros now, but it's okay. They've got an all-star kicker in Damon Duvall and he's got to line up for a 43 yarder. So, you know, we're all in the truck thinking, okay, you know what? This is it. Montreal's going to win the gray cup. This guy is money, right? This, this show is over. This game is over. Let's prepare for a Montreal Alouettes championship coverage. Anyways, he lines up for 43, and so now all our cameras are trained. It's all Montreal. It's all Montreal. You know, we've got Damon Duvall, you know, ISO'd six ways to Sunday. We've got Mark Trestman ISO'd for the Gatorade dump. We've got Anthony Calvillo down on one knee, praying on the sidelines. And the, the, the most impactful shot for me was all the Alouettes lined up on their sidelines, and they were all kind of holding hands, you know, on, on a knee ready to pop up, you know, to celebrate the victory. So the kick is up, and it's short and kind of wide right. So now it's like, now, what, what do we do now? There's just absolute pandemonium on the field. Montreal thinks that they've blown it. Saskatchewan thinks that they've won the Grey Cup. But then out of nowhere, the referees come running to center field, waving their hands.
1: So yeah. at what point do you know that this is, is, is it that? You see a referee in yeah, one of your monitors? Yeah, I see a referee. I see it. a referee. I see the referees
0: running to, to, to huddle at center field, waving their hands. Like there's been a flag on the play. And sure enough, there was orange nylon on the, on the, on the, on the field. And we're like, what, what could this be? And, and there was just, it, it only was probably maybe like seconds or, you know, a minute, two couple of minutes at the latest, but it felt like about five hours. Right. <laughs> and then all, all of a sudden the referee makes the announcement, a legal substitution, too many of them on the field, Saskatchewan. So it's a 10 yard penalty. So they moved the ball up and we're like, Oh, you know, are you kidding me, right? Are you kidding me, right? So uh, anyway, Damon Duvall lines up, and it was covered beautifully on cable cam,
1: 33-yarder splits the uprights, and Montreal wins. And, Paul, here's how maybe the worst moment in Saskatchewan Rough Riders history sounded. Chris Cuthbert, take it away. And there's time on the clock as Kerry Watkins quiet old. day. The all-Canadian receiver puts it into range for Damon Duvall. Gets to go from the doghouse to being a hero and he's missed, but they're all markers down. Penalty markers down all over the field. Illegal substitution. Too many men on the field. Saskatchewan. Oh my. That's a 10-yard penalty. for will repeat first down. Duval gets a second chance
0: from 33 yards out to win the 97th Grey Cup. Ball down, ball through, and the Montreal Alouettes have come all the way back, and they are the 2009 Grey Cup champions. And then what unfolds after that is something you can never, ever plan for. Absolute jubilation of Montreal who had had a second chance at redemption to become the champions versus the utter gutting disbelief of not only the Saskatchewan riders, but the rider nation was, was unbelievable. I'd never
1: cut pictures where the highs were higher and the lows were lower. It was, it was the wildest thing. Do you process that information immediately? Oh God, joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow. Like when do you process that as a director?
0: That's a philosophy question. Some directors like to go like all joy, 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 joy. Okay, a little bit of rejection. Joy, 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 a little bit of... I like to balance it. I like to go happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. Because that way you tell the story better, right? And the other thing too, in a situation like that, when pandemonium is un unfurling in front of all your cameras, you got one shot to get that money shot in. And the money shot for me that night was we had... Cameras in the spotters' boxes upstairs, and Paul Lapalisse, who was the special teams coordinator, he ripped his headset off and threw his, his his hat and his headset down, bounced off. That was a live cut on a robotic camera in the spotters' box. It was like that. That as a director in that moment, that is like that is like you know, be basically just drop the mic and walk out of the truck at that point. But it was unbelievable. The ensuing moments after the kick was good was a, a moment I'll never ever forget. And Chris Cuthbert, who called the game that night for TSN. He summed it up perfectly. He, he said, we thought Saskatchewan's best chance was the 13th man. their fans, which it always was. As it turns out, the 13th man cost them a Grey cup title.
1: Well, leave it to the double C to finish it up and sum it up perfectly. God, that's a great story. I could listen to you tell that story forever. <laughs> All right, it's question and answer time. And I do think it's important to mention one thing, Paul. You and I, do. we discuss the question in advance. We do not discuss our answers in advance. So I have no idea what you're going to say to this. And quite frankly, if I'm being honest, I have no idea what I'm going to say to this. All right, so let's get after it. There we go. Uh, Bri tweets, in some broadcasts, American ones in particular, the camera view is taken at a much wider angle and not as zoomed in as the Canadian ones. Is this because of camera positioning in specific areas or is it operator's choice? And then he says, Canadian broadcasts look better because we can see the puck better you're up my friend
0: well that's an astute observation because it is that is 100 accurate um in canada the play-by-play camera is traditionally tighter than it is in the united states and my best uh knowledge of this would be uh and i i don't want to get into i don't want to start an international uh relations thing here but uh (laughs) I mean Canadians did were the ones that were basically invented and established you know television hockey basically when when tv cameras were able to be put together and put on the air we moved the broadcast over from radio to tv and if you watch any of the old film from the original broadcasts you'll notice that the play by play was always on what is known as the tight follow camera or the camera that follows the action in the park, basically like head-to-toe or a little bit looser. And then when the players would wind up to take a shot on goal, they would cut to the wider camera. So play-by-play on hockey originally started as, like, as tight as head-to-toe. Um, and that, was, that it was traditionally known as camera one in Canadian television.
1: The tight camera.
0: The tight camera is camera right. one. Right Now, in the United States, the play-by-play camera, which covers the main action, is known as camera one which was, that was a transition that I had to make when I moved from Canada to the United States. Not an easy one. I'll say thank you to a handful of TDs who saved my bacon on a regular basis. <laughs> Let um, me guess,
1: you called for two and you meant one? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I got the, I, I, the TD without
0: even blinking, cut to the game camera and looked at me as if to say, you sure you wanted that one? Um, anyway, so the original, or the, the, the origins of TV, of t- televised hockey was to shoot it tight, cut wide when there was a shot or any kind of action, scramble action around the crease. When they started doing hockey in, in the United States, it was more of a basketball philosophy, more of a football philosophy. The game camera was, was wider, and it showed basically almost all the action. You know, it was never tighter really than board to board. And, and it, was also, it was also much easier for the eye to digest the camera as it, was, would, as it would pan east and west across your TV screen. As you get tighter, it gets a little bit more what we call whippy. Like the, it's, you know, the back and forth, the left and right, the east, west is a lot more, but Canadians have no problem, you know, we have no problem seeing the puck, following the puck. We know on a dump in where we're supposed to look and the camera naturally takes our eye there. It's a little bit different. um, You know, especially I can speak for uh, the TV audience down here in Carolina. On most nights, we probably have people watching their first TV televised game. So, you know, we have to, it has to be a little bit more sort of, uh, you know, easy, easy viewing than it would be say up in Canada.
1: That was very um, diplomatic. I'm not going to be as diplomatic, but you, okay. and I, you and I have exactly the same answer. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, <laughs> look, Canadians know how to cover hockey. I think we should be covering it a little tighter. Canadians don't need the Fox blue puck, I don't think. I don't think mm-hmm. I've met a Canadian hockey fan that liked the Fox blue puck, the
0: mm-hmm. glowing
1: puck. There'd mm-hmm. be a reason for that. Uh, yeah. The same reason that if you had a glowing football in the NFL – I think there'd probably be a riot on your first broadcast. We don't need a glowing football. We know where the football is. Well, guess what? We we know where the puck is. I, d- mm-hmm. I don't. You know we can we can play it tight. We can play it a little bit tighter. I I think Canadian fans can kind of figure out the flow of the game. And when you talk about Hockey Night starting, you're talking about a guy named George Retzlaff, who was the producer and the director for Hockey Night when it started on the air. And George basically designed the entire coverage pattern when hockey night began in i think it was 1952 Mm -hmm. and it's evolved over the years and if you watch camera one which is the tight camera which goes into a tape machine here in canada usually it's full of swish pans so you're tight on that defenseman as he's carrying the puck and he fires it forward on the ice and that camera just swishes so you could never watch that you'd be sick in seconds and as a producer, actually, and probably as a director too, Paul, it takes some getting used to to watch that camera and see it swish back and forth and yeah. not, get disor- right? not get disoriented or what's yeah. going on there. That is a real art to work camera one. And I, I can tell a quick story. So in Edmonton on ITV, camera one's operator was a guy named Brent Holman. Wore cowboy boots. Oh, I know and Brent. Yeah. So mm-hmm. every warm up, when the teams are on the ice... All he's doing is practicing his swish pan on blasts from the point or long shots to see if he can track that puck, to see if he's on that night. And I'll yep. be damned if when the game started, you didn't get a great replay on blue every time. Because that's mm-hmm. really hard to do, is to, is to swish track a puck, not have it go out of frame, and stop when you get to the goalie. That's a real art, and he was a master. So that'll do it for today's
0: episode. Remember, if you have not already done so, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform, And don't forget to follow Inside the Truck on Twitter and Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram. Lots of great additional content there as well.
1: That'll do it for today. I'm Paul Hemming. And I'm Steve Lansky. You keep listening in Shell Harbor, New South Wales, Australia. That's right. And we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck.